today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. How many times will God just extend this invitation before it's too late? We're heading in a direction, bringing upon ourselves the judgment of God, the discipline of God, the chastisement of God, the correction of God. And God takes no delight in it. Just as we as parents take no delight in disciplining our children. Disciplining children isn't designed to be easy. If you're a parent, you understand that discipline can be harder on you than the child. God doesn't want to chastise anyone. He longs for all to come to know Him as Father. But, as Pastor J.D. shares today, loving parents must eventually correct those who've gone astray. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the Inspired in Truth podcast or download the Inspired in Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. But for now, here's Pastor J.D. in Isaiah chapter 15 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. Loving Heavenly Father, we're just so in awe of you, so in love with you, so grateful to you. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you so much, and we thank you for this time that we have together in your word here in this amazing book of Isaiah. And it is an amazing book, so rich, so full. But Lord, we are here because we readily admit that we are needy and we need you as we have just, oh, we need you, how we need you, every hour we need you, Lord. So Lord, would you, as only you can, just minister to us and satiate that need that we have in our souls, that thirst, that hunger, that only you can satiate. Speak into our lives, Lord. That's why we're here. We want to hear you speak in that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. Lord, encourage and strengthen the discouraged, the downcast, Lord. Lord, just a renewed hope. I think if anything, we need that hope, that blessed hope. You're our only hope, Lord. And so, Lord, thank You. Thank You in advance for what You're going to do in our midst. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. All right, so... These two chapters, chapters 15 and 16, which I wanted to take together, actually a short chapter in chapter 15, but they consist of a dual prophecy concerning Moab, which we know today as the modern day country of Jordan, actually. It's uh, where my mom was from. She was actually born and raised in a very small farm town in Jordan, outside of Amman, the capital of Jordan. Uh, El Hassan was the name of the town. See, I just spit on everybody saying that. This is the modern day area of Jordan, 
that was actually the time in Isaiah's day, it was known as the area of Moab, where the Moabites were. And this prophecy is specifically concerning the judgment of God that is coming upon the Moabites. And we're even told why. And it's because of their pride and their arrogance and their refusal to repent. And that's what we're going to see. And as we're about to see pride, and this is really the takeaway, pride, as it always is, it will be dealt with vis-a-vis the heavy hand of God's judgment on those who refuse to humble themselves. God is slow to anger. He gives people time to repent. And as we're going to see here in these two chapters, even invitations that He extends to repent. So let's jump in verse 1, chapter 15. The burden against Moab, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. He has gone up to the temple and Debon to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Medeba. On all their heads will be baldness. We're not going to go there. So, and every beard cut off. This is actually, this was actually the judgment of God. Verse 3, in their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth on the tops of their houses and in their streets everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Right out of the chute, first three verses, there's this noticeable sadness. There's a reason for it, but there's a grief here. There's a sorrow here in this prophecy against the Moabites because of their history and their relationship with the Israelites. First, they're actually cousins of sorts, and they are cousins by way of, though it's a very sinful way, but they're cousins by way of Lot and his daughters. Also, King David's grandmother, you know her name, Ruth, she was a Moabite. So, in effect, David was one quarter Moabite because of that. While the Moabites were more often than not enemies of the Israelites, one such example is recorded in Numbers 22. You know it well, it's that time when Balak hired Balaam to curse the Israelites and couldn't. And as he tried to curse them, the camp of the Israelites 
were in a formation, we're told in Numbers chapter 6, that was actually in the shape of a cross with the tabernacle in the center. It would be a foreshadow, a type of the cross to come and the Savior to come, and the finished work on the cross. And that's why He could not curse them as hard as He tried, as He would open His mouth to pronounce this curse upon them. Because of this Moabite king, Balak, who was threatened because of their increasing numbers. So they were commanded to camp to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. Twelve tribes divided into four camps, uh, three tribes per camp for a total of twelve. And then you had the Levites, the tabernacle right in the center. And so Balaam, here he is trying to pronounce this curse upon the camp of the Israelites from this high vantage point. And what does he see but the shape of a cross? And that's why no curse could come out of his mouth, only a blessing. And oh my, what a blessing it was. But that was because of the Moabites. However, When you get to Deuteronomy 2, God tells Israel not to destroy Moab and take their land. And they obeyed, and they spared the Moabites. But now here we are in Isaiah, and sadly this prophecy would be fulfilled when the Assyrian army would attack them, during the night with swiftness and precision, exactly as Isaiah is prophesying here. Verse 4, Heshbon and Elielah will cry out, their voice shall be heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out, his life will be a burdensome to him. My heart, verse 5, will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer. For the ascent of Luhith they will go up with weeping. For in the way of Haraniam they will raise up a cry of destruction. For, verse 6, the waters of Nimrim will be desolate, for the green grass has withered away, the grass fails, there is nothing green. Therefore the abundance, verse 7, they have gained, and what they have laid up they will carry away to the brook of the willows. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab, its wailing to Iglaim, and its wailing to Be'er Elim. For the waters of Dimon will be full of blood, because I will bring more upon Dimon, lions upon him who escapes from Moab, and on the remnant of the land. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the judgment of God. And that's how the chapter ends. And we have this picture that's painted for us of one fleeing to his God, his pagan God. 
And in their attempt to flee, if they, for whatever reason, are able to escape, then the lions will get them in the end. That's the judgment of God. And please don't miss this, and we'll see more of this. But this does not come to the delight of the prophet Isaiah. And more importantly, it does not come to the delight of God Himself. Chapter 16, verse 1, Send the Lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, verse 3, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcasts, do not betray him who escapes. You know what the prophet Isaiah is prophesying here and writing about here? It's actually an invitation to the Moabites. It's an invitation to first resume their bringing of this lamb as a tribute to Jerusalem, as they once did, but no longer did, and also to hide the outcasts as a demonstration of their submission, as they once did. But the invitation is rejected. The invitation is not accepted. Before we move on, I think there's something here that we would do well to take heed of. And it has to do with the Lord wanting for us to return, to repent. How many times will God just extend this invitation before it's too late? We're heading in a direction, bringing upon ourselves the judgment of God, the discipline of God, the chastisement of God, the correction of God. And God takes no delight in it, just as we as parents take no delight in disciplining our children. You know how we tell them when they're young, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. Right, like they believe that. When you're, t- well, if it's going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me, then why do it? How much more our Heavenly Father? And so he puts up these stop signs, for lack of a better illustration, lack of a better way of saying it. And what do we do? We blow through them. He's trying to get our attention. He, he doesn't want us to go in that direction that we have set our foot to go. And He has our best interests at heart, but we have chosen a path that leads to our own peril. And God, because He loves us, wants to stop us, wants to redirect us and correct us. And that's what He's doing with the Moabites here. Verse 4, now we're going to turn a corner here. So 
Buckle up your seat belts. This is very interesting, beginning in verse 4. Now, let me just kind of fill in a blank here, because he's just got done telling them to deal with the outcasts. And here it's almost like he flips around and says, verse 4, let my outcasts dwell with you. Wait a minute, which is it? Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, verse 5, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Okay, hang in there with me on this one. You got two verses here that all of a sudden now are sort of this shift seemingly talking about something different than what he's just got done prophesying. And this is what I mean by a dual prophecy, because see it was a specific prophecy concerning Moab at that time, with Assyria coming and invading the land and destroying Moab. But now all of a sudden we're talking about something yet future. This is a yet future prophecy. And I am personally of the belief that this speaks to the yet future prophecy about the Jews slash outcasts fleeing to this place, Moab, modern day Jordan, more specifically Petra, for the last three and a half years of the seven year tribulation. And this is what Isaiah is prophesying about beginning here in verse 4. He's saying, let my outcasts dwell with you. O Moab, be a shelter to them. This prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And with specificity, it's going to be fulfilled at the midpoint, the three and a half year mark, of the seven year tribulation. Jesus Himself speaks to this in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. He says, therefore, now He's speaking to the Jews, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, stop right there, He's referring to Daniel 9.27. What's Daniel 9.27? Very detailed prophecy, very specific prophecy. Here's the gist of the prophecy. We talk about it often in our prophecy updates. So there's going to be the rebuilding of the third temple as part of this seven-year peace covenant. Many believe, present company included, that this rebuilding of the third temple will commence sometime at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. It has to be, because at the midpoint, which Daniel says, at the midpoint, three and a half years, 
this Antichrist in place of Christ will set himself up in that temple and declare himself to be God. And he will commit this abomination that will cause desolation. And it will be at this point, at this midpoint, the three and a half year mark, when the Jews will realize this is not our Messiah. This is a false Messiah. In fact, this is Antichrist that Daniel spoke of. They know Daniel. They know Daniel 9.27. And they're going to realize that this is the Antichrist, and they're going to flee to this place that God has prepared for them in advance in Jordan, Moab. And we're going to see that here in a moment. So Jesus says, whoever reads, let him understand. Then, verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. That's interesting, because transportation shuts down. Travel is nearly impossible on Shabbat, the Sabbath. Or if it's in the winter, very difficult. What Jesus is saying here is when you see this happen, run, run, don't look back. Flee to the mountains, this place that I prepared for you. For then, verse 21, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Now understand that we're in the seven-year tribulation from chapter 6 on. In fact, from chapter 6 through 19 in the book of Revelation are all about the seven-year tribulation. In fact, this is probably as good of a time as any to talk about this divine outline, as one has called it, there in the book of Revelation. John in chapter 1 is told to write that which he has seen, past, that which is now present, and that which is future. And so the whole book of Revelation is past, present, and future. Past is chapter 1. John was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, resurrected, and glorified. That's chapter 1. And he wrote in chapter 1, past tense. And then he wrote present, chapters 2 and 3 seven letters to seven churches. It's actually the church of Smyrna. Very interesting church. So you've got seven churches that literally existed at the time that the revelation was given to John to write. And not only were these seven letters to these seven churches sent to them then, they have prophetic significance for us now. 
And so chapters 2 and 3 are present. Everything from chapter 4, verse 1 on is future. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. We hope you continue to be encouraged as you learn some good things from the book of Isaiah. Did you realize that there are 39 chapters in Isaiah that address judgment and 27 chapters that point to God's salvation? How fascinating that this book relates to 39 books of the Old Testament, much about judgment of sin, and 27 books of the New Testament, pointing to Jesus as God's salvation for the world. Isaiah is yet another example of how God interweaves the old with the new, and how prophecies from old point to fulfillment of that later. Are you seeing the connections that God has written into these pages of Isaiah? If you're wanting to hear this message again or more like it, you can find them at calvarychapelkaneohe.com. While you're there, you can learn more about the church this ministry is supported by, Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. If you're not already plugged into a local church, we invite you to be part of our church family. If you're in or near the Kaneohe area, we'd love for you to come visit us on Sundays and Thursdays for a time of worship, fellowship, and in-depth Bible study with Pastor J.D. You can find service times and directions on our website. Again, that's calvarychapelkaneohe.com. We're so glad you tuned in today to learn from the book of Isaiah. We look forward to the next edition with Pastor J.D. and the things that God has put on his heart to share from this prophetic book. Thanks again for listening today to In Spirit and Truth.